Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lovati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andy. Andy has asked to remain anonymous for this episode. He is a survivor of multiple suicide losses, having lost a family friend, a close college buddy, and most recently his father to suicide in 2019. On this episode, Andy shares the story of his dad's life and the events that led up to his death. Throughout the episode, Andy details how losing a family friend in 2008 might have influenced his dad's final decision. He talks about the night of his dad's suicide and the immediate aftermath. We go through the note that his dad left behind and the confusion that it caused. We also talk about how his father's suicide has impacted his family. And finally, Andy shares how losing multiple people to suicide has affected his own view of the world. This episode is slightly different than our other episodes in that it is mostly narrative, but Andy really did an excellent job of telling his dad's story, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Good to see you. Hey, Rob. Good to see you. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, looking forward to it. As I mentioned to you before the call started, definitely had, you know, my own nerves and experience show up around doing this episode, uh, being that we've both both lost our fathers to suicide. Uh, with that said, it's something that I'm really looking forward to uh, connecting with you on and, and hearing not just your dad's story, but how how it's impacted you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's there's a question I like to start with, and I'm hoping you can kind of walk us through what what is the most important thing or some of the most important things that you learned either from your dad or from losing him to suicide. Um, well, I I, I listened to enough episodes to know that question was probably coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh. I'd say, well, the most important thing I learned from his life um, and just from knowing him, I guess the importance of being kind and compassionate and caring, working hard and being a strong person, but not strong in sort of like a macho masculine way. He was, he was not that kind of guy, mm -hmm. but 
and something that's kind of become clear to me in losing him is that he was in his life. He always seemed to me like I looked up to him as someone who was, he always seemed like the most in control of his emotions of anyone I knew. He's like, Oh, he's the calmest person. I know he's, he's, he's so in control. Like he's like, the person I looked up to is like, oh, I want to be like that. But what I didn't realize and what I've learned in the last few years is that is was kind of, you know, a facade that was him internalizing everything and not showing his emotions and kind of internalizing the pain. Mm. That was not necessarily a positive thing and not necessarily something that I wanted to emulate in my own life. You know, you know, he he would get frustrated, but I never saw him lose his temper. Like, you know, he'd be sad or upset about things, but I never saw him cry. And in my life, I saw those as positive things. Yeah. <laughs> and I realize now those are not, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he's a bad person in that way, but I, I guess that's sort of the biggest thing that I've learned from his life and his death. If that answers your question. It does. I think that's a great answer and and a pretty good jumping off point uh, to what I'm hoping to talk about next, which it sounds like your dad sounds similar to my dad in a way that on the surface, he was this really stoic guy. He kept it together. He didn't show too much emotion. He didn't have outbursts. And what you're realizing mostly through his loss is that he kept a lot of things bottled up. He kept a lot of his experience to himself and didn't necessarily share what he was going through. And I'm wondering if, you know, in looking up to him in that way uh, as a child, and I'm assuming into your adulthood as well, did you take away some of that messaging and try to emulate that in your own life? Did you try to keep it together in the way that you saw your dad do so? Oh, definitely. You yeah, mean, yeah, I always thought that being anxious was a fault. Mm. And, you know, I always saw like crying as a failing and not like as sort of like, oh, a macho boys don't cry type thing. I just sort of thought like nobody should cry. You know, it wasn't like boys don't cry, but girls are, should cry. It was kind of like everybody should be able to keep it together. Like that is kind of like the ideal is that, you know, everybody should be able to be stoic and in control of their emotions because, you yeah. know, this is my dad I look up to and he is always even keel and he is always sort of keeping it together and neat and organized and, you know, you know, just able to handle everything and deal with all situations and never letting anything overly bother him. Yeah, I feel like, in describing your dad, you probably described most of our dad's generation <laughs> and yeah. how we view men of that generation. And I think it's a good thing that that is starting to shift and we're being encouraged to not just be emotional, um, but be able to share that with other people. And I think it's a sign of strength that you're able to come here today and share not just your dad's experience, but your own emotional experience with me today. So I just want to reiterate how appreciative I am of that. And um, I know there's quite a bit you want to touch on about your dad and about his story. 
And that really is one of the uh, primary intents that I had in starting this podcast. And really the meaning behind the name writing on the walls is we're being able to tell the story that in this case, our dads didn't have the opportunity to tell. So with, with that in mind, I'm hoping you could tell me, tell us a, a little bit about your dad. Um, feel free to go into as much or as little detail as feels comfortable for you. Does that feel like a, a good place to start? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wanted to give a lot of background about his life um, because, you know, one of the things I was telling you about um, when we talked about before the podcast is, you know, one thing that I felt was different about my story um, as compared to some of the other people that I'd heard in the interviews was that unlike some of the other people, I felt like I actually was able to piece together without too much effort a lot more of the why mm. than some of the other people had. And I, I really knew more of why this happened. And knowing that didn't make it any easier. Mm. It just made it different, if that makes sense. I'm not saying it made it easier, it didn't make it worse. It just made it different. Um, and I, I just kind of wanted to take the the opportunity to just talk about his life and talk about sort of my understanding of sort of what led him to that. Yeah. His, his, his decision and what led him to that, that end point and sort of the breadcrumbs that, uh, that caused that. But yeah, um, from that jumping off point. Yeah. My, um, so my dad, so I'm 38. Uh, I was born in 1984. My dad was a fair amount older. He was born in 1947. He was born in uh, upstate New York in a small town on the Hudson River. And he grew up like on a riverfront house, which was pretty cool. So like right on the riverfront. So he'd play on the riverfront, uh, you know, skipping stones, playing on the ice when it froze over in the wintertime. Uh, didn't have much family though. No aunts or uncles or cousins. It was just him, his mom and dad. Had an older sister he didn't really get along with um, until like he was grown up and out of the house that he kind of reconnected with his sister. Unfortunately, she died of cancer in the 2000, I think. When he was 18, he wanted to become a journalist. So he applied to a bunch of schools out of state, um, but they were all really expensive. He wanted to go to Northeastern, but it was too expensive. Um, so he wasn't really able to go. But he did get, he did so well on exams that he got a regent scholarship from the state of New York, but it can only be used in New York. So he went to community college at Ulster County Community College and lived at home. But right when he was starting, his dad died of a sudden heart attack. So my dad was only 18. It was 1965. Um, and he was pretty devastated by that. So losing his dad, one of his only family members, he was pretty close to his dad was, you know, just gutting for him. And so then when he was in community college, he, I was just learning this like just the other day. So this is kind of new to me, but he like, I had just found out that he was in a literature class and he got accused of uh, plagiarism because he wrote a, a paper that was so good that they didn't believe that he possibly could have written it himself without plagiarizing it. Um, so they said that, no, you had to plagiarize them. It, 
plagiarized it, even though they didn't have any evidence of it. And he just got so frustrated that he had to switch majors to sociology. And it had, took him an extra year to graduate to get his associate's degree. I mean, um, and then he had to switch out of journalism entirely. But anyway, when he was in community college, he met a girl there, got married. And um, that was not my mom, but his first wife, who he had two kids with, uh, my older sister and half-brother, my older half-sister and brother. She said that he was so shy that he wouldn't go to college, move away and go to college unless she married him first. Wow. So they got married and they went off to Oswego in Western New York. So when he was there, he was able to avoid the draft. So this was during Vietnam. So he was able to avoid the draft by staying in school and uh, also like going to anti-war doctors and getting like a fake doctor's note. That was one thing he, was t he told me about before. Like that was a thing at the time you could go to a doctor and they write you like a fake medical note. <laughs> like flat, flat feet or something. Yeah, flat. Well, he told me that he, a doctor like said he had a heart murmur mm -hmm. when he didn't actually have anything. And he was also like a student counselor. He would, he would help other students uh, avoid the draft, like tell them like how to get out of it. So that I thought that was kind of cool when he told me about that. That is cool. But uh, so then after that, he get he went and got a master's in social work and became a, a counselor and therapist. But um, at first he was a counselor and therapist, but then he kind of moved over to like the more operations and management side of mental health care. Um, but he spent his whole career in mental health care um, after that, but he was always kind of more in the operations management side rather than like, you know, patient, direct patient care. Like even though he started out as like counselor and therapist, but uh, I needed to mention that um, when he was there, when, well, when he was first working in a psychiatric day treatment center, um, he became really good friends with this guy, this uh, very eccentric psychiatrist named Dan who became his best friend. This was like the late seventies, early eighties. So Dan was uh, this kind of crazy <laughs> psychiatrist. He kind of came of age during the beat generation of the fifties. When I say eccentric, like he was at, he was literally, he was friends with Jack Kerouac. Wow. Um, and he was actually Jack Kerouac's psychiatrist. And Jack Kerouac's last book is actually dedicated to Dan which is sort of weird. That is, that's wild. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Dan was like one of these, like part of the early wave of like, in, you know, in like the fifties and sixties when they, there was a lot of reform and like mental health advocacy when they were getting into like uh, the deinstitutionalization of patients. So Dan was big into like getting patients off their like debilitating meds. Like they had like, you know, schizophrenics and stuff who were just like on heavy tranquilizers where they just like, were in institutions and on tranquilizers all the time and couldn't really do anything. Yeah. So he was kind of getting them off of meds and back into like regular society and into group therapy sessions and in day treatment instead of, you know, in institutions. So that's what they were doing. So Dan was about 20 years older than my dad. He was kind of like a father figure to my dad. And my dad was like a son Dan had never had because my Dan had Dan had, had daughters from a failed marriage, but no son. And, you know, my dad had lost his dad at 18. When my dad's marriage fell apart after about 10 years, he went and lived with Dan 
until uh, Dan actually introduced my parents to each other. And then my dad actually continued to live with Dan until he moved in with my mom. So after uh, Dan and my dad actually ended up resigning together over in protest over like the firing of a colleague and started their own day treatment center together in in Sullivan County, New York, which ended up like winning a, a, an award for best geriatric day treatment center in uh, the state of New York. Oh, cool. Which I I thought was pretty cool. So like my dad started the center and he hired Dan as like the resident psychiatrist. Eventually though, my dad was having like financial struggles when, you know, I was born that, that year. And like, he was struggling to pay the bills. Like we were living in a trailer park in New York and we just didn't really have that much money. So he moved us to Connecticut, Dan stayed at the, the center in New York. He was helping out our family with bills and stuff. I mentioned this because Dan was always kind of like a grandfather to me, even though I, I called him Uncle Dan my whole life. And my little sister, who was born later, uh, my family named her, they gave her the middle name Danielle <laughs> after Dan. I'm mentioning all this about Dan because he was very close, obviously, to the family. He's my dad's best friend. And uh, when he died of suicide years later, mm. uh, it was a big shock to my dad. And it was uh, <laughs> a very big trigger that would kind of foreshadow things later. What year was that? That was 2008. And I, I was going to, I'll come back to that. But, you know, that's why I'm mentioning it now. Um, but yeah, so as I said, my dad's career was in it. He, my dad always stayed in the mental health care field. Always faced a lot of challenges, mental health care, especially on the management side. It just is very difficult, you know, working for these like mental health care provider organizations. He, he faced a lot of like layoffs, you know, just offices being shut down. We had to move a bunch of times. We moved from Connecticut to North Carolina. We almost moved to Florida, but at one point, he took a job in Florida and found out that this uh, guy that had hired him was actually had hired him to try to get him to commit Medicare fraud for them, <laughs> which was crazy. Like they, cause it turned out, you know, my dad was an expert on like Medicare and Medicaid billing. And then my dad went, moved down there, but ahead of us. And it was like, realized that they had hired him to help them cook their books. And he's like, yeah, I'm totally not doing that. <laughs> and then, uh, found out like he couldn't, he had already resigned his job in Connecticut. So he's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to transfer. Can I move to North Carolina? So that's how we ended up in Raleigh. <laughs> so yeah, basically it was a hard uh, career to be in. <laughs> Sounds it. Um, yeah. And so he spent the last 12 years of his career in, in Wake County Human Services. It, it was tough for him. Uh, and one point when I was a teenager, he was kind of like pretty down about his job. At, at one point in night, he said to me, don't ever try. I don't remember what we were talking about, but he said, don't ever try to take a job to try to help people. And I remember thinking, that's really messed up. You shouldn't, you shouldn't say that to a kid. I think I was like 15. I was like, I know you're down about your job, but you shouldn't say that to a teenager. <laughs> I didn't take it that seriously. Like, I'm, uh, you know, I was really into math and science and computers and kind of like nerdy tech stuff. 
So I, I didn't like, I wasn't like kind of inclined toward social sciences and that kind of stuff anyway. But I just remember thinking like, yeah, you shouldn't say that to a kid. Yeah, for real. Uh, but, uh, you know, it just, it gave me some insight into him being down about his career. I know he didn't really mean it, but, you know, yeah, he did say mm -hmm. that though at one point, but. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, just ab about what my dad was like, you know, he is, he was a very quiet person in general. He was reserved, thoughtful, intelligent. I think I know, I, I remember my wife once said he was kind of professorial is how she kind of described him. He's like, he was a very, he was a good storyteller, but he was very like deliberate in the way he talks is very different from my mom. My mom was very, very outgoing. She kind of sucks up the oxygen in the room. So like when they were around each other, she would talk and he would just kind of be quiet. And so like a lot of people who knew both my parents, they were used to just her talking all the time and him not saying anything. So they would mm -hmm. know her very well and not really know him at all. Yeah. Like my dad was very funny, but he was like very, and I think you may have said something about this too, about your dad. Like he was, he had a very dry sense of humor. He was very like sarcastic. Uh huh. And he uh, he liked to slip very like subtle quips into conversation that like if you weren't paying attention you would miss them. <laughs> uh, and I, I think I was saying before he was like very kind and empathetic, uh, but he internalized a lot. Yep. And that was a problem. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't want to make it sound like he was uh you know an angel like he. It, things could come out at times that were not good. Like he could be very bitterly sarcastic, you know, that those negative emotions did come out. He could be very passive aggressive. He would sometimes sigh passive aggressively, mm -hmm. especially towards my mom. He was always, uh, let's see, he was very, always a, his whole life, you know, even into his seventies, he was always a very somewhat left of center Democrat. When you think of like uh, people becoming more conservative with age, that was not not him. My mom was always my mom always drifted like all over the map. She started as a Democrat, then she became like a hard right Republican, then she was drifted more towards a moderate again, and then I don't even know what she is now. I can't even tell you. But he always uh he always stayed kind of uh you like I said somewhere left of center center Democrat. Uh, strangely, he was never into music. Unlike your dad, you always talked about how he was into music. Yeah, it was weird to me. He was never really into music. He was always really into like listening to sports talk radio, uh, especially about the Carolina Hurricanes. He was obsessed with the Carolina Hurricanes. We, um, I'll talk about that. Like we, we went to a ton of Hurricanes games when I was growing up. But he would sometimes, uh, he would like to sometimes hate listen to conservative talk radio. There's not a lot of like. It's not that much like uh liberal talk radio, but he would like hate listen to conservative talk radio sometimes. <laughs> uh and, and then complain about it. He was like super into listen what watching stuff on TV about science and history. He was really into learning about the Civil War. He's like kind of he definitely fashioned himself as a Civil War buff. He was like really neat and organized and well dressed. You know, he liked gardening and lawn care. And like, he was always like fixing stuff around the house on weekends. I think he liked the solitude of it. Just kind of like spending time, just like fixing stuff. 
Um, he didn't really pass that on to me. Like, I don't really know how to fix that much, but he was always like just finding things, patching stuff up and, you know, he'd go outside and fix things. <laughs> like he and I were very close growing up, especially like, like I said, like we, he, we had season tick. He got season tickets to the Carolina hurricanes and Raleigh. It went to, I think almost every game, my last two years of high school, which was pretty time consuming. And then we watched a lot of the home games too on TV. You know, and we we think like we went to a bunch of college visits. We visited a bunch of Civil War sites. I was he, I think like I inherited some of that interest in Civil War. So I did like this project on in high school on Civil War history. And he was like, "Oh, let's go visit a bunch of the sites like around Virginia." And so we drove That's out so and visited cool. a bunch of sites. Uh, and I was telling you right before the podcast started, like in uh, in college, once we went, he we took this week long trip over the summer to the Southwest. Oh yeah, that's right. The, the viewers can't see. I'm wearing this Bryce Canyon t-shirt right today. We we went to this trip on the Southwest. We drove like, we flew out there. We drove like 2000 miles in a rental car in like one week. Wow. And uh, we visited Bryce Canyon, Arches National Park, Canyonlands, Grand Canyon. Can't think where else, but, and this is, like I said, he wasn't really into music. So we weren't even listening to that much music in the car. <laughs> They didn't even have a smartphone. So we were, it was pretty much us chatting the whole time. Let me think like, yeah. And I got married in 2009. I asked them to be the best man at my wedding. Oh, wow. That, that also had the side benefit. I didn't have to pick between my college friends. So <laughs> there's, there's like uh, two benefits there. So I didn't have yeah. to make anyone else feel bad. But yeah. So getting to some of the sad stuff. Virgin, uh, let's see. Valentine's Day 2008. That's when. I got a phone call from my mom that Dan, my dad's best friend, had passed away the previous day. Now, I knew that Dan had was terminally sick. He had a, this really bad heart condition that was terminal. It's like some kind of maybe atrial fibrillation or something. Like he was so sick. He had, he was working at, he was age 80, but he was still working at the day treatment center. Wow. Um, but he was so sick that he had to stop working. Um, I hadn't seen him in years at that point. We used to visit him like every year or so when we would drive up to New York, we would stop by his house in, in Socrates, New York. Um, but I hadn't seen him in years at that point. Um, so I knew that he was sick. So I thought, oh, I guess he, you know, he died of his condition. I was like, well, that's sad, but you know, it wasn't surprising. But then at one, some point in the call, my mom said, you know, well, he, you know, he shot himself. And then I was thinking, I, I just didn't know how to feel. It was just kind of caught me off guard. I talked to my dad on my, the phone that day, see how he was doing. My dad sounded really down and he said, I kept meaning to call him, you know, but I didn't, I never didn't call him because I knew he was going to do this. He, he always told me that he would do this. He wow. always told, he said, he always told me that if I, that if he got too sick to work, he would, he would kill himself because he didn't never want it to be a burden to anybody. So if he ever got, he would basically work till he died. If he ever got too sick to work, he would take his life. And I knew he was too sick to work, but I thought I should probably call him. But, you know, I knew at the same time, I knew I wouldn't be able to talk him out of it. But, you know, I probably should have tried, but, you know, I just didn't. So I think he was feeling that survivor guilt and feeling, but. He was feeling like he should have called, but the anxiety of not wanting to. 
and I didn't, I didn't really know how to comfort my dad, but it was hard for me to know what he was going through. I didn't know how to feel about Dan's passing. You know, it was like thinking, well, is he, he was terminally ill? Is this like a physician assisted suicide? I don't know. You know, mm. he's a, he's a physician. He's not his own physician. Yeah. But, you know, my dad seemed okay, but he, after that, but he internalized a lot. And two months later, after that, we had a bunch of family in town visiting, spending the night at my parents' house. And um, I spent the night too, because they were in town. I decided to stay over. And I got up in, early in the morning. I think I went and let the dog out. I went out to the screen and porch. My dad was passed out on the porch. So it was like an early April morning. It was chilly. It wasn't freezing, but it was chilly. He was passed out on the porch with a, a bottle of liquor. He was just slumped back with his mouth open. And my, my dad didn't drink a lot. You know, he would sometimes drink wine when people came over. He was passed out with slumped back, mouth open. I thought he was dead. He wasn't dead. But it was difficult to rouse him. <laughs> Uh, I managed to rouse him. I managed to get him upstairs to my parents' bedroom with support. Nobody else was awake. I got him to my mom, my parents' room, to my mom. He started crying in my mom's arms. That was the only time in my entire life I saw my dad cry was then. And, you know, my dad was kind of out of commission the whole day. My other relatives were in town. I kept saying, oh, dad's not feeling that well. Uh, just kind of made excuses for it. You know, he she showed up late on the day. His eyes were all red. Um, you know, obviously he had drunk a lot, so he was probably pretty hungover. But uh, one of my uncles said to me later that day, I think your dad, I think Dan's death is affecting him a lot more than he's letting on. He didn't say anything more to me than that, but I think the subtext was that I think maybe he was sitting out there with my dad talking late at night. I think they were sitting out together. I think maybe they were drinking a little. I think my uncle went to bed before him. My, my dad stayed out there and probably drank some more and passed out. I never really asked my uncle, but I think that's probably what happened. I think maybe my dad was sharing about how he felt. But I mention this because that's literally the only time I've ever seen my dad cry was then. So two years after that, it's 2010. One of my good friends from college, Eric, died by suicide. I, I graduated in 2006, so this was a few years after college. But you know, I was still in touch with my friend. He was at that point a law student at UNC. He had actually lost his father a year and a half earlier from MS and was depressed. I knew my friend was depressed. I knew he was taking antidepressants. I talked to him about that. Um, I had no idea that he was having thoughts of suicide. He did not share that. At that point, we were actually talking online. This is back in the day of like AOL Instant Messenger. We were talking online basically every day for a couple of months. You know, I'd come online. He would usually initiate. I would go online and he would me message me and we would talk for a while basically every day. So we were pretty much in constant communication. We were just talking about, you know, current events. He would talk about what was going on. We were just talking about anything and everything. 
you know, philosophy, just everything. And then just one day he sent me a message. He said, Hey, uh, I stepped out of the room for a minute. I came back. He had sent me a message. He said, I'm majorly upset. But by, by the time I saw that he had already lo logged off, I just missed it by a few minutes. And I tried to call him. I tried to text him. He didn't answer either. Uh, I tried to text him and call him a bunch later that day. Uh, throughout the day, he never answered. I thought, well, that seems a little concerning. He didn't log online at all for the several next several days. I began to get somewhat worried, so I continued to try to call him. He was living in the law school dorm, so I didn't really know exactly where it was. It's not like I should just go to his house and find him because I didn't know yeah. exactly where he was. You know, I asked a mutual friend, like, do you know if he's okay? He said, well, you know, I saw him the other day. He was fine. But, you know, no one could seem to find him on the phone. Uh, nobody else could reach him on the phone. But a, a week later, I got a call from the same mutual friend and found out that he had taken his life. I told my parents about it as soon as I found out. They were, you know, obviously shocked and saddened for me. But, you know, the next time I saw my dad, though, one of the first things he said was, isn't that just a, such an incredibly selfish thing to do? He said that very, like, bluntly and coldly. Mm. And I, I was just, like, taken up, caught such off guard, and I was angry that he said that. I didn't, I, I didn't like express that. I kind of just kind of bit my tongue and didn't say anything because I knew he was thinking of his friend, Dan. Yeah. Wow. And I knew he was still, you know, nursing that wound. But to me, it was, I was angry because I was not mad at my friend. I did not think my friend was selfish to me, a 25 year old taking his life. It was not selfish. It was tragic. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not, it's not a question of selfishness. <laughs> it's just a tragedy. But a couple of years after that, it's like a strange thing that happened was a, a friend of Dan's actually made a documentary of Dan's life for, and made some footage of, made a mix of footage of him you know, working with patients at day treatment center and such, and mixed it with interviews of the end of his life and his decision to commit suicide. I don't know that this was responsible or not. You know, it had just made, it was talking about his career and also talking about his decision to die. It was sort of interspersed these two things and, you know, turn it into about an hour long documentary and we found out about it somehow and got a copy of it from dan's widow and uh my i didn't really want to watch it i thought it'd be too painful my parents watched it and they said oh it's really good you know you should watch it i did not find out about this until after my dad died but apparently my dad sort of came around on this and was telling people like my siblings that he was thought my that Dan was brave and that he was proud of him for doing that what, what he wanted. So finding that out years later kind of recontextualized that bit. Um but uh anyway in the years after that, you know, my dad was kind of forced into retirement um at age 65 in 2012. 
they had, you know, Wake County Human Services did this restructuring where basically everybody had to quit and re and uh, reapply. <laughs> and there were just a lot of reasons that my, my dad didn't want to, couldn't either couldn't do that or didn't want to do that. Um, so he just decided, well, I'm 65 now. I think I'm just going to retire. We all thought that was a good thing. It was just, he wasn't really that happy with his job anyway. So we thought, okay, this is good. You can retire. You can, you know, rest now. But in the years after that, he just seemed sort of restless and uncontented in his job. And I'm sorry, in his retirement. Uh, my mom was always, my mom was doing real estate at that point and she just was always super busy. So, you know, he was kind of restless at home. She was always really busy. I think he wanted her to retire too and be at home, but she's about a decade younger than him. So I don't think she really wanted to. He spent a lot of time, you know, taking up things like gardening and stuff, but the novelty wore off. At the same time, I just got busier and busier, um, which I mean, you know, I was in my thirties. So of course I was busy. <laughs> You know, I was busy with work. I had a kid in 2014. I had a son, 2014, and another one in 2017. We started to worry more and more about him and his well-being. He started just like doing odd things. Well, I don't know about doing odd things, but he started just like, he kept getting injured a lot, which was an odd thing. He just would do stuff around the house and have like careless injuries. I didn't really know what to make of that. Hmm. So it was like falling off ladders or like, I don't know. He would like hit himself in the face. <laughs> I don't know. It just was strange. We just thought it was strange. He was always getting hurt doing stuff around the house. Uh, we didn't quite know about what to make of it. It was almost kind of a running joke that he was getting hurt in weird ways. It, it just, in retrospect, I don't quite know what to make of it. Like, it was almost a joke that we'd say that he had a death wish. Mm. Or I remember joking that that somebody was going to die because they were going to, someone would get hurt and they weren't going to call 911 in time. Because they, they, my parents just seemed cavalier about that. I don't know. Um, at the same time, in those last years, started to get worried about substance use of mm -hmm. my dad sometimes he would just act weird and i couldn't understand why and i didn't know if it was substances or something with his brain like it's almost like an early onset dementia or what i didn't know what it was didn't seem like alcohol didn't know if it was something prescription pills or like I said, some kind of brain fog or, you know, something psychological. He would always play it off or deny it. I never wanted to bring it up when he seemed normal. When he seemed weird, he would say, I don't know what you mean. I feel normal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But he just, his voice would sound different. He would just seem less coherent. He would sort of talk faster he would sort of overshare more I, I don't know i mean if if i'm sure you have experience you know talking to people with in in sort of those states somewhat and I, I, it's really hard to explain you just you can just tell when people don't seem themselves and don't seem right totally. and it, it's like 
it always seemed to me like I was the I and my mom would be the only ones who would notice it. It almost seemed like even when he was in that state, I always just felt like other people around me didn't pick up on it. But when I noticed it, when I talked to him on the phone, I could tell right away. And when he was in that state, I didn't want to talk to him. But he was always more talkative when he was in that state. He would be more talkative and I wouldn't want to talk to him. That was sort of the yeah the uh the irony of it mm-hmm. and i couldn't uh I couldn't make sense of it. My mom would sometimes tell me that he though that he was an incredibly anxious person. she would say, "Well, you know your dad takes valium every day, so it's because he's an incredibly anxious person, and I would say to myself, that doesn't make sense. He's the calmest person I know." And that's kind of getting to what I was saying before. It's like, well, is he really the the calmest person I know, or is he internalizing things and self medicating? Yeah, with substances like Valium. I think at one, she told me at one point that he takes Valium every day. Thing she told me once that Dan, his friend, the psychiatrist, once gave him a three hundred count bottle of Valium. I don't know. I assume wow. because he didn't, I don't think he was his psychiatrist that it must have, don't think it was above board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know where he got it from. Uh, That's concerning. It is concerning. I don't, I told that to my therapist once he says, why would you do that to a friend? Mm. And I don't understand that. So, you know, I'm thinking now, like, is it Valium? Is it something else that is sort of explaining this? you know, these states of, you know, concerning, you know, why is he acting like this? Why is it, why am I sometimes uneasy about it? It was like, it got to the point and it got worse towards the last couple of years where when I would talk to him on the phone uh, or see him, I would be uneasy about, is he going to act normal or not? And there were times I'd be more sure if my mom was not around and I called, it was more likely that he would be like that. And that's why I'd be, be more suspicious that substances were involved. Um, the, so the other thing is that it became more clear that relationship problems were going on too. Toward the end of 2017, uh, he called me out of the blue and said, hey, do you want to get lunch? And we never did that. Like we never had lunch. Like we always got together with both my parents. He said, you want to have lunch? And I said, uh, sure. It was like over Christmas break. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll go get lunch. And we, we got together. We sat for like an hour. And right at the end, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, your mom and I just started couples counseling. And, and I, I immediately thought, this is why we had lunch. He wanted to tell me that, you know. Yeah. And he was telling me, you know, your mom's really difficult to be around. You know, I think she's like an opinion bully. And he's like, yeah, you know, the counselor, the counselor agrees with me, I think, but I think we're making progress. He said, we should get lunch again sometime. This is great. You know, we never did it again. Like, I feel really guilty now, but we never did it again. And then, you know, the next fall, I called him one time. My, my mom abruptly said, decided she was going to go on a week long vacation by herself with a friend. I thought, well, that's strange. So I called my dad once and I 
during while she was gone and said, maybe I should invite him over. See, you know, do you want to come over see us and the kids? I called him and he did, he seemed under the influence, not of alcohol, but of, you know, probably Valium or something. Yep. Yep. And he, it's, he was just talking and talking and oversharing and seeming strange. And then he says, things are not good. A few weeks ago, your mom abruptly stopped counseling. She just decided we're going to stop counseling. And the counselor said, we're probably wasting our money. He almost never says this, but we're probably wasting our money. And I don't know what's going to happen now. I don't know what's going to happen now. He seemed really down. He started talking about how, you know, your mom is really attractive for her age. I'm sure she could find someone else. But, you know, I, I know I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make her happy. He said, and he started getting like really emotional and effusive with love and talking about how much he loves us. I mean, he wasn't someone who is normally withholding. Like he would, you know, he, you know, he's, it's not like he, he would normally say, I love you. He's not someone who was like, the kind of person who wouldn't say that, but he's just, he was not normally like effusive and overly demonstrative, but in this call, because he was, I think under the influence, he was overly effusive on this call. And he kept saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen next. It was very, it was concerning, but he came over the next day and he seemed down, but otherwise he seemed pretty normal. But other than that, that whole next year, he just, he seemed off. And I remember talking to my wife about it and we kept saying, yeah, you know, he's just, he's kind of slowing down or he just seems lower energy or he's starting to show his age. You know, at that point, my dad was like 71 or I started saying like, cause my parents had a nine year age gap. I said, well, their age gap is starting to show itself more now that my dad's getting older. Yeah. But I didn't, at no point did I kind of attribute any of it to depression. I was just thinking, oh yeah, well, my dad's in his seventies now. So February 9th, 2019, I got tickets. I'd gotten tickets to the UNC Miami basketball game and a silent auction. Uh, I invited my dad to go. Uh, we hadn't been to any sports games. You know, we used to always go to the Hurricanes, but hadn't been to any games in years. You know, it was kind of hard. He had stopped going to games years before. He decided it was too much of a pain, especially since I wasn't going. Um, and when I had kids, it was just too hard. But I invited my dad to go to this game. My wife at that point was six months pregnant with our third son. She was taking my four-year-old son to a birthday party. My dad... uh Came to the house in the morning to, we were going to carpool together the game, of course. Uh, he showed up, his eyes were all pink and puffy. And the first thing I said when he came into the door, I didn't even say hi. I said, are you all right? And he was like, oh yeah, I I'm fine. You know, I just, I didn't sleep well last night. I stayed up really late doing my taxes. Um, so I just didn't sleep that well. I was just working really hard in taxis. Like, you know how hard it is doing the taxes because, you know, mom's real estate and it's just really hard, you know. Her real estate business, the taxes are so hard. It just, it just seemed like it seemed like a plausible cover story. So I just bought it, the client and sinker. So I was like, okay. But it really seemed to me like he'd been crying. That was my first thought. No, so uh I have a two-year-old son too. My two-year-old came with us. 
because uh, I only had two tickets, but like a two-year-old doesn't need a ticket. So it was like, oh, that'll be fun. He'll come with us. My two-year-old, my two-year-old always bonded really well with my, my, his grandfather. So he would always like, every time he saw my dad, he would like go right to him. He'd like, he liked to pull on my dad's beard and like hold it like a handle. So it was always really cute. <laughs> so, uh, so he came with us to the game. Um, so we went to the game. My dad just seemed really weird the whole time. He was just kind of like a shell of himself. He just seemed really preoccupied. It's just kind of like a flat affect, like just not his normal self. We went to the game. He said, like, one of the first things he's like, so this is the Dean Dome, huh? And uh, it just struck me as odd because we had actually been to a game together like 10 years before. And I was like, oh, well, we went to a game together here like 10 years ago, remember? And he's like, oh, really? And it just didn't seem right to me that he'd forget that because like he just, he always had a really sharp mind. He was not like a forgetful person at all. But like he just didn't seem to remember that we, that he'd, I'd actually take him to a game before. So that just struck me as weird. I don't know, just everything about it. He just didn't, he'd seen, he seemed off to me. Like, I remember like as soon as we sat down, like, he spilled a soda, which is not that weird, but like, he just didn't really react to it. Like he spilled his entire soda and he's like, oh damn. Like he cleans it up, but I was like, you want to get a new soda? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. I remember like we were driving back from the game and like, I was like, oh, I was like, yeah, my office is right over there. And like, he just didn't even like respond. I thought he would be like, oh, that's cool. Your office is there you know, or something like he just didn't even react to it. I don't know. There's just all these things that just didn't seem right, you know, but I, I like, other than that, like we had a good time. Like the game was fun. It was exciting. Like most of our conversation was normal. I don't like, so I don't want to say like, it was a bad last memory of him because this was the last time I saw him. Um, Like the Tar Heels won. It was an over, it was a close overtime win. <laughs> so it's not all, it's not all in all a bad, memory but there were there were still a lot of the red flags to it is is kind of what i'm saying you know when we went home though you know the thing was like i told him we got back from the game and i said well you know you know mom and and papa which is my mom's dad we're gonna come home and meet us for dinner here after you know we were getting home in the afternoon they said they're gonna come over and join us for dinner at the house um, since they, cause my mom had offered to, to babysit the two, our two year old, but I said, no, nah, that, that's okay. He's going to come to the game with us. Why don't you join us for dinner later? And my dad was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go home and work. I want to go back and work on my taxes first. Then I'll come back for dinner later. And I was like, really? It's just going to be like two hours. Like, why don't you, you know, why don't you just stay? He's like, no, no, no. I, I want to work on my taxes. I'll just, I'll go back for like two hours and I'll come back. I'm like, that just seems weird. So like we went back to the house. He just seemed really awkward. So he gave me a hug and he, he left quickly. He didn't even say hi to my wife and my other son who were there. Like they, they said hi. They were like saying, my son was like, hi, grandpa. And he just said like, hi. And he left. He just left really abruptly. And it was weird. My My mom got there like right as he left and they didn't even like, acknowledge each other it was very strange like they got there at the same time he left so fast 
he walked out like right as she came in, they didn't look at each other. And I was like, that's so strange. So when we were ordering dinner later, I called my dad and I was like, okay, we're getting dinner. You're coming back. Right. And he's like, nah, I'm just going to stay here and do the taxes. Yeah. I just really want to finish these taxes. Like, that's so strange. And I told my mom and I'm like, well, dad's not coming back. He, she's just gave me this shrug. And she's like, he's just, he's just weird. I'm like, what does that mean? And she's like, he's just weird. I'm like, you got to tell me what that shrug meant. And then she told me like, well, we're, we're just not, we're not getting along that well. Then she took, then she told me what he had told me a few months ago, which is that they had stopped their counseling sessions, that they're not getting along, that she said they're sleeping in separate rooms. They're walking on eggshells around each other. She said, uh, although she said their primary issue is that he's not being nice to her. That he says he loves her, but he's not cherishing her. She said, you know, I don't understand it. His over all over all the years, his staff always tells me, you know, everywhere he's worked, his staff always says he's the best boss they've ever had. Like, I just I just want him to treat me like one of his staff. Like, why can't he treat me like one of his staff? But you know, his counselor says he's not the counselor says he's not willing to change, so we're just wasting our money. So She's like, then she said, don't I deserve to be happy? And she, then she told me, she said, I guess maybe he's depressed, but you know, I think maybe he just needs to find some hobbies or something. So I'm just, she's telling me this. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know what to think here. She told me like, he's, uh, he's taking antidepressants, but I hate the way it affects his personality. I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> And then she kind of ended with the same thing that he had told me. That's like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but, uh, you know, something's got has to change. Anyway, the next couple of days, I'm just kind of like, have, have that rattling around my head. Like, you know, don't know what's going to happen. I'm kind of racked with worry, even though I'm 34, I'm like, really don't want my parents to split up. I'm like, of course, like, I mean, I haven't lived at home in like 15, you know, 16 years and like, does it really matter that much if my parents split up the afternoon of the 11th? I'm thinking for the very first time it occurs to me, if my parents split up and my dad is alone, you know, he might kill himself. I'd never had the thought before. He always seems so in control, but I think he might actually kill himself if he's alone. But then I'm like, nah, that's a crazy thought. That's not, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. But by that, that night, by the night of the 11th, the thought passes. All the, my worries pass. I'm thinking, you know what? I'm probably over worrying about this. You know, this spat, my parents have had spats before. This is probably going to blow over. But, uh, you know, that night, the 11th going into the 12th, I, um, I remember it so clearly, you know, I watched a basketball game, did some laundry, watched Rachel Maddow show, <laughs> all, all normal stuff, got my laptop out like 12 to 1045, you know, got a beer, <laughs> trying to do some coding for work. The beer didn't help with that. 
I got got tired pretty fast. <laughs> got tired pretty fast and fell asleep. So I didn't really get that much coding done. Uh, I fell asleep pretty fast. It uh, woke up at like midnight. I'm like, oh okay. I just uh, typed a bunch of gibberish and it's like kind of fell asleep at the keyboard. So it was like midnight. I'm like, okay, well that was not that effective. Dragged myself to bed. So my phone was on silent. So I didn't notice the text from my mom where she said, "Can you please come over? I think Dad's gone crazy." So I was in bed. Only a few minutes later, my mom called. So when you see a call from your parents in the middle of the night, you know you know it's not good. Yeah. I assume something terrible happened. I answer the phone. I expect the worst. I, but when I, when I answered, she just had a sad, pathetic voice. And she said, can you please come over? I'm scared. I think he's gone crazy. I, she said, I said, why, why, what's wrong? And she said, I told her, I told him I wanted a divorce and dad said, he's going to kill himself. And of course I'm shocked into awake being fully awake. And I, I go upstairs in the house trying to gather more information, which, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, she told my dad that she wanted a trial separation and he flipped out. She started threatening suicide. You know, they were arguing most of the day. Eventually, she just shut herself into her room and went to bed. At some point, she heard him leave the house and she got scared. And I said, did you call 911? And she said, no. She just called me. And I said, well, you need to call 911. And, you know, my wife heard me go up. She heard me get a phone call. She came upstairs. And she said, what's, what's going on? And I, I just started shaking and I, I couldn't, I tried to tell her, I couldn't say the words divorce or couldn't say the words divorce. I couldn't say the words kill himself. I couldn't get the words out of my mouth without crying. Eventually I, I did. I said, we decided, you know, I, I can't really trust that my mom did this. So my wife called 911 also. Um, but when they did, they said, okay, you know, the police have already been dispatched to that address. So we knew that, you know, that was taken care of. I decided I got to go over to, you know, my, my parents are about 20 minutes away. They're on the other side of Durham. I, I got dressed. I decided to go over there. I was, I was worried, you know, am I even safe to drive? You know, not, I mean, I only had one beer, not because of the alcohol, but just, you know, just because of my panic state. But, you know, I decided to drive over there. I wasn't I wasn't worried about a violent confrontation or anything. I just didn't know if it was, if I was safe. But I decided I have to go. Got in the car, started driving. It was, you know, at that point, it was probably 1245, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I tried calling my dad. There was no answer. You know, I called my mom back from the car. At that point, the cops were there. They were looking around. They said, my dad's car was in the garage. They were looking in the house. They searched, they were searching around the house. They couldn't find any sign of him anywhere in the house. So I was trying to figure out, I said, you know, maybe, maybe a friend went to pick him up, you know, or maybe he got a taxi or something like, you know, but really, if that's the case, he's not answering his phone. He could be anywhere, you know, you know, who knows? Uh, my mom was saying like, well, maybe he went for a walk outside. I said, well, it's okay. It was like 1 a.m. It's in February. You know, it's not, it's, I doubt he went for a walk. Like that yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's possible. But, you know, the cops are searching outside anyway. 
She says, well, they're searching outside. She's looking out the window. She says, there's flashlights outside. They're looking around. Um, eventually, she says, okay, they're looking around. She says, well, okay, I see they're, they're opening the door to the shed. They're looking inside the shed. I see flashlights in the shed. Um, okay, you know, well, all right, they're leaving the shed. They're looking around more. She said, I don't know, where could he be? And then she says, okay, well, well, no, I see there's flashlights in the shed again. I see, I think they're back in the shed. She's like, I, I see there's lights in the shed, but I, I can't see anything. And this whole time, you know, I'm still driving on the highway and trying to be focused on my driving because I don't want to run off the road, you know, from my panic. But eventually there's a knock on the door. And, you know, I can hear, I don't know if she has a man speakerphone or not, but I can hear a little bit that, you know, when the police officer, the knock on the door happens, the police officer opens the door. Uh, she opens the door and the police officer says, you know, they found him. And she says, oh, they, Andy, they found him. And I said, is he alive? You know, and then I, she repeats, is he alive? And I could hear the police officer say no. And she says, very, she says very kind of calmly, matter of factly, she said, she says, repeats, oh, no. She says, I'm so sorry, Andy. She just says it kind of calmly and flatly. She says, I'm sorry, Andy, like it's not affecting her too, almost. But I think she's just in so shock that she's not even really processing it. Like she's delivering the bad news to me. And then I just start yelling, no, 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 you know. And she says to me, are you still driving? And I'm like, Yes, of course I'm driving. And she says, that's not safe. You need to pull over. And I'm like, well, I can't pull over. Like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to pull over? Like, what am I going to do then? You know, I have, I'm, you know, I'm not that far. I need to get to the rest. I need to get to the house. And, uh, you know, she's, the police officer says something to her and they said, well, you know, the police officer says you can, you can stop someone and they'll pick you up. So I I stopped at the a Burger King. That was sort of the nearest place to stop. That was just a few minutes from my parents' house. So I stopped at the Burger King parking lot, waited there for a few minutes. It didn't really save me that much time, but I stopped at the parking lot. Police, I had just had to sit there in the dark. Police officer came and picked me up, took me the rest of the way. Um, the officer drove me there, I said, can you tell me, you know, how did he die? And the officer said, he hung himself in the shed. And um, when I got to my parents' house, my mom, my mom and I hugged. Mom was hysterically crying. But immediately she started trashing my dad's name, which was very hard to deal with. She started saying he was a substance abuser. But then she said, well, he, at least he was a substance user. And there, there was a chaplain there who was trying to comfort us, but I think she was having a hard time dealing with the fact that my mom was saying bad things about my dad. She was trying to give her space to vent, but like, 
uh, you know, that was also hurting me. <laughs> I don't know. That's I, I think I've blocked out most of that, so I, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> I think, you know, she said, uh, she started saying things like, she she just started saying like, well, he he did this just to hurt me. She get, that was something he would, she would repeat a lot. He did this just to hurt me. She would say it like uh, he did this. She he kept saying he would kill himself if she went through with it with the separation, but she never believed him in a million years. She she would tell him you can't kill yourself. What about your kids? You know, don't you care about your kids? But. She said that he said they'll get over. She she said uh, he'll said they'll get over it. Mm. Which is it's a hard thing for him to tell for her to tell me that he said that. You know she said she said that uh, she was saying that you know throughout the day it was clear that he was, you know quote on something but uh, and she kept asking him like if he was on something and he kept saying no but he eventually admitted that you know he had taken something but because he. You know, if you're going to kill yourself, you had, he needed something to take the edge off. He did, he told her at one point that he had, you know, stopped taking his antidepressants. And it seemed like he had maybe stopped taking his antidepressants abruptly, but I think was the impression that I got. Um, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I feel like she had said that it was good that he had stopped taking them. And I think even though I, I was pretty frozen in my grief and I was not in the moment, you know, and not saying anything, but I definitely said uh, unfroze enough to say that this was, that was really dangerous <laughs> that if that's what he had done, yeah, you know, and I think most people I thought would know that that was dangerous and he for sure would have known that that was dangerous of anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, at some point, my mom started having panic attacks, you know, and I had to call to the EMTs who were around, obviously, you know, because this was a crime scene too, at the same time. So there was an investigator there, there were EMTs, you know, we had to stay there for hours while they were removing the body and investigating, you know, we, you know, obviously we stayed in the house, we didn't have to go outside, but there were EMTs there. We had to call the EMTs in to check on her because she started having panic attacks. She thought she was going to have a heart attack. I asked if they could give her something. They said no. But if we had something around, if she had medication, maybe we should give her something. She had uh, clonopin around. I'm not too familiar with all these things for anxiety. So I found it for her in her medicine cabinet and gave it to her. After a while, she kind of turned into a zombie, um, <laughs> which was kind of beneficial for me yeah too but um yeah at some point you know i got a call from my mom's sister who had my, and she kind of helped console me she's up in new york but you know she my mom had called her she had helped sort of talk me through some of my grief um i had had to call my sister and tell her which was very difficult break the news to her about what happened. Uh, unfortunately, I, that's when I found out 
I called my, my younger sister and her fiance. And that it was at that moment that I found out that they had recently asked my dad to officiate their wedding mm. that I did not know that till that moment. <laughs> that was kind of a punch that they got. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had to call my wife and tell her, you know, she had known, she had known what that I was going there, obviously, but not the news that what had actually happened. Um, but you know, there, I, the investigator obviously came in and had to talk to us, which was tough because, you know, they have to treat it as a potential crime scene just to be sure. Yeah. And you know that they're having to cross, you know, cross their T's and dot their I's. Mm -hmm. I overheard my, my mom didn't say this to me, but I overheard my mom tell the investigator that a year before she came home and there was a noose hanging from the loft in their house and a suicide note. Oh, man. And that she threw away the rope and saw this as a cry for help and that my got my dad to start therapy but nobody else knew about this i mean other than outside of you know the two of them like i did not know about that when i talked to the investigator he showed me the suicide note that my dad had written that day which was on the computer screen and there was a printed version next to the computer screen. It was a mix of existentialism, depressive poetry, and clearly pointing a finger at my mom. Uh, he said he no longer brought joy to anyone. Uh, he said, I'm paraphrasing here because this is from memory, when the world has gone dark and there's no hope, you could only find solace at the end of a rope. Uh, he said, why, oh, why did you choose for me to die? Uh, he said something along the lines of his brain is turned off and returned to nothingness, just like before he was born and that we're all nothingness for much longer than we're ever alive. And this is really gross, but I just have to share it because it's just like bothering me. The, the last thing in the suicide note was he wrote, Cremation, please, dot, 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 with a side of fries. And it was like, why did you have to end this with a dad joke? Mm. It's like, it just made me nauseous. It was like, it's like, it, it seemed like exactly like the kind of thing that he would do, but it was just like, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't know. It just, the whole thing made me angry. It was like nothing in it. There was nothing in it about love or family, or remorse for anyone you've left behind. Like, it, it just struck me as, like, vain and angry and impulsive. It, like, it, it was his writing style, but it didn't really feel like it came from the brain of the father that I loved. Like, I, I wanted to destroy it. Like, I didn't, I don't know if anyone else saw it. Well, I know one of my uncles stumbled upon it, but I didn't, I don't think I told anyone about the note. I didn't want to. I wanted it to die with him. <laughs> understandably so 
So after this, like the chaplain drove my mom and I back to the house, to my house. My mom, we made up a room for her. Obviously, she wasn't going to stay there. So I brought her back to my house. My parents-in-law picked up my kids and took them away from my house, took them to their house in Cary. They stayed there for a couple nights. Uh, my mom was zombie-like because she was on the Klonopin. On the way there, she told me, she said, I didn't actually want to get divorced. She said that she just wanted a trial separation so she could try starting fresh and dating each other again. I was like, oh my God, that's another gut punch. I'm like, why? <laughs> why did this have to go down like this? <laughs> and like, so we got my mom settled and like, I just, I broke down crying to my wife and like, I just had this, I felt like, I had this poison inside of me and I just was worried. I had this feeling like I had this poison in me and I was worried I had this point that my children had this poison in me too. Like they, we had this like blood curse. I just, I just had this feeling like that we were, and I had, it took me like a long time, like months to shake this feeling that we were like faded to the same curse that befell my dad if that makes sense. Totally. And like, I don't know, but like, I don't know. The next day my siblings came over my, well, my two sisters came over. My, my brother lives up in New York. So I didn't see him till the funeral, but my mom, she just started trashing my dad all over again in the morning until her best friend came over and sort of was like, you need to knock this off. You can't be doing this around your kids. And then knock some sense into her. Is like mm. that was her way of venting somehow, and like she just like said, "You need to stop." Like I don't care if this is a way of grieving, but you need to stop doing this. Um, but in the immediate aftermath of this, like my mom was like a zombie, so I had to take over, like plan writing the obituary, planning the funeral. Same time, I like had to go home and help take care of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like I was like. Having to be like logistics manager at the same time, I was like spontaneous crying spells. I'm like, I was not used to, I was like my dad where I was used to being like in control all the time. I was just like, I'm not used to being like this. I don't know. It was, it was hot, tough. But yeah, the, I was, uh, I was in shock by the, the turnout at the funeral, like how many people came. And like, just to see my dad had been retired for seven years been like probably like 10 of his former staffers showed up. I was thinking of like the, uh, you know, the, the stereotype of like wishing your boss was dead. I'm like thinking like, wow, he's retired for seven years and like seven 10 of the people who worked for him, like pretty much his entire staff showed up to his funeral and they, okay. People talked about what a great boss he was, but, um, I did want to say one thing at the funeral, one of his former coworkers who he did have a falling out with though, who was very close friend with slipped me a note and said, I want to talk to you. Give me a call. This guy, Charlie, um, I called him and he said that, you know, your dad and I were very close before years ago. And I knew your dad had a dark side. I just, I wanted to understand better. Like, why this happened like and he told me that he had made my dad promise that if he ever got to a really dark place that he would call him 
And he was upset that my dad didn't call him this time mm. because he told me that my dad did get to that place in 2008, the same year that my that Dan died and did call him and that Charlie came over and I guess talked him down. And that was kind of like a wake up call for me. I was like, oh, whoa. And then, and then it would, and that I guess it was about something that happened with my mom, like relationship troubles too. But it, the fact that it was the same year that Dan died too was kind of like, whoa. So just knowing that this was kind of like a long term struggle for him was, uh, was pretty meaningful. There was also finding out after that, you know, my, my dad's first wife, which is, you know, I, I don't have a relationship with her, but she's still like the mother of my older siblings. She said after she's like, well, she was worried that something like this would happen. Cause she said, you know, you know, your dad worshiped Dan and always wanted to be just like him. Mm. And my dad died one day short of the 11 year anniversary of Dan's death. So it's like, I was like, wow, this had to be like in his mind every year, every February. He's had to have been thinking about this. But yeah, um, after my dad's death, like, you know, the funeral comes and you think like, oh, we got closure, but it's just like, what now? <laughs> it's what you yeah. think. Yeah. Oh, I don't really have closure after all. It's like I found a therapist right away. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's tough to know how to move forward. Like I had a, baby just two months later and it was just like i didn't feel excited about it it's like i don't i don't want to have a baby now i'm not ready yeah. <laughs> can i put this can i put this off for a while can we have a baby we put that on hold for a year it's like oh wait i can't really do that mm -hmm. you know my uh my mom still lives in the same house she still has the shed i was sure that she would get rid of it um but she's like oh no i need it for storage and I was like, oh, I guess it's your house. It's your choice. She's like, I guess her friend did a sage birding ritual and cleansed it of negative energy. I was like, okay, it's your, it's your house. I'm like, but I, I don't really like being there. I didn't say that to her, but I still feel like that. I don't like looking at it. Yeah. How could you it's hard for me. It's hard for me. <laughs> She's like, well, it's my dream house. I'm like, that's out of my, the only thing she only lived there for an hour, a year and a half before my dad died. It's kind of my nightmare house. Um, but, you know, for the first year, uh, you know, my, my mom and my sister and I, like, you know, we grew closer in grief that first year. Like, you know, not everybody does, but I feel like we grew closer. Like, we spread his ashes. We split them. We spread some of them here in Durham. We spread, spread the rest of them back up in New York. Like, some on the Hudson River, some on a mountain trail that he really loved um, in New York. Um, that first anniversary of firsts passed. It was tough, but it passed. But like it had just passed when COVID hit. And then everything started to fall apart. <laughs> like, and that's kind of where we are now. Like our grief was frozen. Our family dynamic collapsed. Like my mom turned to quickly turn to like, COVID trutherism and anti-mask, anti-vax stuff, anti-science, right-wing conspiracies, 
you know, my sister is kind of caught in the middle. She tried to keep peace with my mom and stay close to her. But like, you know, then we weren't seeing each other. My mom was giving me a really hard time about that. But yeah, and it's just, I don't know. It's been really hard to rebuild the dike since then. I'd say like grief has just been frozen. It's starting to thaw somewhat, but like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to rebuild it. I wish I had like a, a really good uh, positive note. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think like as the pandemic is starting to wane, I'm starting to recontextualize the grief and starting to see it in new ways. And But sure. it, I do think like it, it sort of froze things like the pandemic became an existential crisis that put a lot of it on hold. Although I do, I did think a lot about my dad. Like I really wish he was here because he would be really interested in this. <laughs> like, like he would be really interested in what's going on in the world. He would have a lot of opinions on this, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like, I don't have time to really think about my grief because I've got all these other crises with avoiding COVID and dealing with my mom and her problems with uh, COVID trutherism. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm sorry I, I uh, kind of ate up all this time with the narrative, but you know, I did feel like I had a lot of story to tell. Yeah, I, I really want to thank you for, for bringing that to me today. Um, incredibly powerful telling of not just your dad's life, but his struggles and ultimately um, his death. And definitely want to hold some space as well for uh, remembering Dan as well as Eric. You just did such an incredible job really tying that all together uh, and bringing us to where we we find ourselves today. And I do hope that you coming here and sharing your story with me today is another step in the direction of thawing out some of that grief. I can definitely relate to what you shared of just life continuing to go on after something as big as losing your father to suicide. It's like, here's the next thing that's requiring my attention and my focus and my grief and my feeling. And it's almost like we have to find the time to carve out to feel sad about losing our dads. And uh, there are about a thousand questions I want to ask you. And if, if you're cool with it, maybe we put a pin in this and have a part two where we can kind of get into some more of the now where you find yourself in relation to the grief around losing your dad and definitely finding myself being curious about some of the, the dynamic with your family um, and and how oh, yeah. that's taken up space. So maybe we revisit that. This feels like a really good place to end the conversation for now and pick back up. How, how does that feel for you? Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. Excellent. Well, again, Andy, I, I really appreciate your time and your vulnerability in coming on here today and sharing about your father. Um, I know it really helped me. And I think anyone who has an opportunity to hear this uh, has has a lot they can take away from the conversation. Oh, great. It was great to talk to you too. Cool. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Andy. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, same. Look forward to talking right. to you again. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.